Life is full of disappointments and wounds and hurts. And we know there is an enemy who steals and kills and destroys. But Jesus has given us life and hope and peace. And we know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, and darkness. We've been called to be overcomers, and we can, and we will. Well, I want to welcome our Missouri City family into this service today. The last two Sundays, Pastor Libin Abraham, the campus pastor at the Missouri City campus, has been preaching live, teaching live the, the five defensive weapons of our warfare. And he's done an amazing, amazing job. But I want to welcome now all of us back together again as we finish up the series that we have begun. General Jonathan Wainwright was the general of the American forces in the Philippines when the Japanese invaded the Philippines in 1942. And he was overrun, and he became a prisoner of war along with the other American soldiers who had survived that invasion. I want you to take a look at his picture, General Wainwright. Now, as a general at a POW camp, he was beaten more frequently than any of the other prisoners. He was abused constantly. And when those days that he did not get beaten came, he was mocked and ridiculed. He lived a very hard, terribly, terribly difficult life for three and a half years. But at the end of three and a half years, the American armed forces had defeated the Japanese armed forces, and ja Japan had surrendered. And when that surrender happened, it then trickled down to the commander of this POW camp, and this commander surrendered all authority to General Wainwright. And suddenly, those guys who had beaten him now saluted him. And those who had mocked and ridiculed him now obeyed everything he told them to do. Now, why? It was not because suddenly he became powerful in and of himself. It was the armed forces of the United States that stood behind him that gave him the authority that he had. And that's the key thing I want you to grasp from the illustration, and that is simply this, that our authority is always rooted in a higher power. The Bible says that you and I have authority over Satan in the name and of, the, of the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of his blood. Satan, the last thing he wants you and I to know is that we have authority over him. The last thing he wants you and I to know is that he is a defeated foe. It's not that he will be defeated. He's already defeated. It's not that one day we will have authority. We ought to have authority. What he wants you and I to believe is that we are downtrodden and we will always be downtrodden until we get to heaven and then we'll be rescued. But no, you and I can live in victory today. 
We have been given authority today. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19, when he said he, the resurrected Jesus came to his disciples and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Go therefore. Jesus is saying, when you go to Bogota, when you go to Richmond Rosenberg, when you go to Nepal, when you go to Haiti, when you go to Missouri City and Sugar Land and, and wherever you go, all across this globe, go in the name of Jesus Christ. Go in the authority of Jesus Christ. You can go because he has given you the authority by his name, by his blood, by his power. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. I want to talk to you about these things today. We've been in a series entitled The Invisible War. It's a, a series on spiritual warfare. And the first part of this series was understanding our enemy. You, you can't defeat an enemy unless you understand that enemy. To understand our enemy, and the last half of the series is about the weapons of our warfare that God has given to us an ability to overcome Satan in our lives. And over the course of the last few weeks, we've seen five defensive weapons that God has given to us. And this morning, I want us to look at the two offensive weapons that God has given to us. But before we do, I want us to understand our authority in Christ. Let's take a look at what the Bible teaches about this. The Bible says that when God created mankind that he created us human beings to be lower in authority than the angels. Listen to what he says. Psalm chapter 8, verse 4 and 5. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him, mankind, individuals, a little lower than the angels. As you read the Bible, you'll discover that authority is a big deal to God. He has created levels of authority. There is God, there's the angels, there is us. And the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 10, that Jesus gave up his authority and he came to the earth to take on human flesh. He willingly gave up his glory, his majesty, his authority, and he came to the earth and was born as a baby. You know, don't you? You know that Jesus didn't begin as a baby in, in Bethlehem. That long before he was a baby in Bethlehem, he was already in heaven. Why? Because he has always been. There was no time of the beginning of Jesus. He is God the Son. He is there on the throne but at the right hand of his Father, there in heaven. But he willingly gave that up, and he came to the earth and took on human flesh, and he was willing to submit himself even to be as a servant and then submit himself to the cross. Now, I want you to get the visual. Would you look at the visual with me? I want you to see him on the throne in heaven. And I want you to see him stand up. 
and take off his glory and take off his authority and take off his majesty and lay it aside. And he came to the earth without any of that. And he lived every moment of his life as he grew up, as he started his ministry, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything, you, you understand that, that he did not operate out of his own power as God the Son. He operated out of the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything that he taught through the power of the Spirit. All the miracles he performed through the power of the Spirit. All that he taught us about his Father, he taught to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just the way you and I, he is saying to you and I, we are to live our lives through the Holy Spirit. He showed us how to do that, how to live our lives through God's Spirit. He did it. And he died on the cross. He was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then when Christ arose from the grave, he took back his authority again over everything, including Satan. Listen to this passage of Scripture found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Listen to its wording. God's power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. I want you to picture this passage in your mind. There he is. He has ascended back to heaven. And watch him. He goes back to the throne, and he is seated on the throne. And he takes the authority back. He takes his majesty back. He takes his glory back. And all of it has been restored. When the, uh, it is said that a monarch uh, is on the throne, the whole idea of sitting on the throne is a statement about authority. When a king, when a queen sits on the throne, it is a statement about authority. I'm not working to get my authority. I have my authority, and I sit on this throne in charge, in authority. So, Jesus came. He gave it all up, came. He lived that perfect life, lived by the Spirit. He died to pay the penalty for our sin, rose again by the Spirit, and he went back to heaven and now has all of the glory and the authority that has been restored. You get it? Now, notice this next verse. This is just a few verses later. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Three times in one sentence, he says Christ. He wants us to understand this has nothing to do with us. It has to do with our relationship with Christ. And here is what he's saying. He's saying that when we come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, though we as human beings 
are lower than the angelic realm. He lifts us up. He gives us the authority through Jesus Christ, and now we have authority over Satan and his demonic host, not because of anything about us, but because of Jesus Christ, because of the name of Christ, the blood of Christ, the power of Jesus Christ. Are you following me? We have authority. We have authority because of Jesus. Christ has now given us authority through his name. What this means is this. Satan is a roaring lion. I've said it over and over throughout the series. But at the resurrection, Jesus put him in a cage and knocked his teeth out. Do I hear an amen on both, on, on both campuses? He knocked his teeth out. He can roar. He can roar. And he roars at us. He can roar. But if you don't get in the cage with him, he can't hurt you. You stay out of the cage and you walk with Christ and he can't touch you. God has given us authority over Satan at the name of Jesus Christ. He must flee. You can overcome him when you realize that by the name and the blood and the power of Jesus Christ, Satan has no authority over you. Everything changed at the cross of Jesus. Everything changed at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, we've spent the last two weeks talking about five defensive weapons that he, God has given to us, found in Ephesians chapter 6. And this morning, I want us to look at the two offensive weapons that God has given to us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Now, when he gives us these two offensive weapons, it is to be in context with the other five. The helmet of our salvation, the confidence that we are, we know Christ as our Savior and he's never going to throw us away. Those, that feet shod with the, with the gospel of peace. We stand firmly because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we've come to know Christ as Savior. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. We are a child of God. The confidence that that gives to us. You realize that the helmet is at the top, the feet at the bottom, and on both sides. It is that confidence that we have that we know Him and He knows us and we are a child of Almighty God. The belt of truth, Satan comes and he lies about us and who we are and what we're about. He comes to us and tempts us, God won't mind. You go ahead and do that sin, it'll be fine. And the moment you do it, he accuses you now. God doesn't love you anymore. God doesn't care about you. He is the tempter and he is the accuser. And he uses both of those things to try to wear us down and destroy us. But the truth is that we know God, we love God, and he is with us. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, that breastplate of righteousness, of right living, of obedience to God. You keep obeying me and it'll protect you, God says. Act like a breastplate of righteousness. The shield of faith, whatever he throws my way, whatever he does, God, I will not turn from you. I will trust you. I know you will take me all the way through. The shield of faith. 
Now, he tells us about the sword of the Spirit. The sword. Release the power of God's Spirit through the Word of God. Ephesians 6.17, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Roman soldiers would have two swords. The first sword was a long sword that you usually see. It's this picture right here of that uh, the long sword. This picture right here, the long sword right there. That long sword. That's what you usually think of, right? Of the long sword. You see, you know what they were trying to do is wait until they got that that blank filled in. I didn't give enough time to do that. This long sword is what we usually think of when we think of the sword. But there's a second sword that, that uh, a Roman soldier would have. That long sword is for battle. They're out there with a war. But this sword is what they carried around all the time. Say there is a soldier who's a peacekeeper in Jerusalem, and he didn't have that long sword. He's got this sword. It, we would call it a knife, but, boy, this is quite a knife. It's 18 inches. It is as sharp as a razor on both ends, both sides of that blade. And it, they knew how to use this. In close combat in a crowd, they knew how to use this. And this is the sword. This is the word that Paul is using when he talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 puts it this way, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. He's talking about that little one, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He is saying that this sword is like a surgical knife. God's Word is like a surgical knife. He can get to the heart of any issue. He can cut through. His Word can cut through our excuses and our sins and tell us who we really are and tell us what is really true about our life. And he's saying that if we will read His Word, it will transform our life. Now, I don't know anything about Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert is a, a late-night comedian. I don't listen to him. The little snippets that I've heard of him, I don't know that he and I have a lot in common. So I don't, I, I don't stay up and listen to him. But, but I, heard, I read a story about Stephen Colbert yesterday. Stephen Colbert shared that he grew up as a Catholic in the Catholic Church, but when he became an adult, he became an atheist. And he's lived all these years as an atheist. And he said, but something happened to him not that long ago. He said that his life was in despondency and despair. This, these were his words. That his life just did not have any meaning. And he said one day he's walking down the street. And he said a total stranger walked up and handed him a little green book. The little green book was a Gideon New Testament. He said, just handed me, I don't, I've never seen the guy before, never seen him later, ever again. And he said, handed me a little green book. And he said, I, I got curious about the book. I opened it up. And he said, I began to read the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, honestly and truthfully, I did not know anything about Jesus. And he said, I began to read the words of Jesus. 
And he said, I was stunned by them. And he said, something began to happen inside of me. And he described that he came to know Christ as his Savior. It was the Bible. It was the impact of the Word of God. It is sharper. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, I don't know anything about Stephen Colbert, and, and I, but I believe if I'm understanding his testimony, he's my brother in Christ, and I, and I hope him the very best. The Bible is a powerful weapon against our spiritual enemy. But three things need to happen for it to be fully actualized in our life. The first thing is you must have the conviction that the Bible is truly the authoritative Word of God. You can't just believe, well, this is, a, this is a good book. It's got some real nice stories in it. Yeah, you, you, we ought to read the Bible ever so often. It's got to be more than that. It has got to be the Word of God. It's got to be authoritative in us for it to make the difference in our life. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong. It straightens us out, and it teaches us to do what is right. This Word is powerful in our lives. As long as we understand what it's saying, it teaches us what is right, and it teaches us what is wrong. And it straightens out our life, and it shows us how to live. And as long as we bring it into our life as the authoritative Word of God, it can have that kind of impact in our life. And this is why in this culture there is a deep-seated attempt in this culture to separate us from the Word of God, to separate us from the Bible. If we can just get those Christians to lay the Bible down, we can beat them. If we can just get those Christians to say, well, the Bible is a good book. It's a wonderful book. It's 2,000 years old. And in the Old Testament, 3,000, 3,500 years old, and we cannot really let it decide what is right and wrong today. If we can get Christians to come to that place, we have them whipped. But when we take the Word of God as being the Word from God and make it authoritative in our life, then it becomes powerful in our lives. It becomes powerful. The second thing that must happen is this. You must begin to read the Bible and study the Bible and memorize the Bible and meditate on the Bible. You know what I've noticed in my ministry? It's the most amazing thing in churches that I've been in. I find people that just will defend the Bible. I believe in the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. And never read it. I defend it to my death, but I'd never have time to actually read the thing. Read the Word of God. It doesn't help you if you don't know what's in it. Do you realize what a shame it is for us Christians to say, after being a Christian for years and years, really, I don't know much what's in the Bible. What a shame before. <laughs> what a shame. What are, you, are you serious? It's that meaningless that we won't spend time in it. It cannot be your sword if you don't know what's in it. 
Psalm 1, 1 to 3 says this, Blesses the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. You do not know whether you are walking in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the seat of sinners or the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of mockers. Unless you know what the truth is, you don't know what the, 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 uh, the, the wrong is. Unless you know what the right is, you know what the truth is. If you don't know what the truth is, you don't know what the counterfeit is. Do you hear what I'm saying? And some in this room, you are sitting in the seat of mockers. You are sitting in the council of the wicked, and you don't even realize that you are, and it's changing your heart. But when you get into the Word of God, something begins to happen inside of you. Wow, I did not know this. I did not understand this about God. I did not understand this about life. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, which means God's Word. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. Let me tell you something. Whatever you do, you will prosper. Whatever you do, you will prosper. I don't mean money. I mean life. Whatever you do, you will prosper. If you will yield yourself to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You got to read it. You got to study it. You got to memorize it. You got to meditate on it. And the more you do, the stronger, the stronger you'll be. So for this to be an effective sword of the Spirit, it means that, first of all, you've got to understand what it is, and you've got to let it have the authority that it does have, that it is the Word of God. And second of all, I immerse myself in it. Billy Graham, old man, about to, not, not long before he died, was asked the question, if you could change everything, anything, what would you change? He said, I'd spend more time in the Bible. And that's Billy Graham. There's a third thing I want to recommend to you, that you would be benefited by getting into a mentoring relationship with someone who will teach you the Word of God, and then you mentor others. In our church, we have a mentoring ministry, sort of a formal mentoring ministry with women. Tallulah Ruger, who is our director of Uh, meeting adults in our church oversees that mentoring ministry with women, but we don't have right now, we've had it off and on, an official mentoring ministry for men. But let me just tell you this. Guys, listen, if you, if you want to be mentored by another guy, find a man that you respect spiritually. Find somebody that you respect spiritually and go to him and say, would you mentor me for six months? I'm not saying forever and ever, but would you mentor me? Would you help me to better understand some truths from God? And I see your life. I, I, I want to know how you have grown, what God has taught you. I want to grow. I want to be mentored as a man. Now, the first thing that that guy will say to you is, good grief, I don't have the slightest idea what I would do. That's okay because, see, we can help you with that. Gary Hill, our administrator, is more than an administrator. I've never had, any, never had any administrator like Gary Hill. He has such a deep love and heart for God, and he, he, he does not stick by his job description. He finds every kind of ministry that he can find to touch the lives of people around, and he is the, the, men, the, the men's mentoring guru in this, in this 
church. And he has so many materials. He can, look, if somebody comes to you and says, would you mentor me? Or you want to go to somebody else and say, would you mentor me? Go to Gary beforehand or go to John Rushing or go to Ben Coleman or go to Pastor Lib and Abraham or go to Don Waybright. Go to one of these pastors and say, would you help me? What materials could we work through that would grow me and deepen me in my Christian life? And these guys already know the materials and they'll show you those materials and then you go together with another man. You hold each other accountable. Six months, it's not forever, but six months, hold each other accountable. Go through this, these materials, this book. Learn from each other. Grow mature. And when that mentoring time is over, go take two other men and you mentor them. You will grow faster, stronger when you are mentoring than when you get mentored. If you'll take the Word of God as the authoritative Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and you will begin to pour it into your life, and you will get with another guy who's further along maybe spiritually than you are, and let that guy disciple you, it is amazing what will begin to happen in your life. Parents, I'm going to ask you, would you be the disciplers of your children? How do you do that? Come on, Pastor, I don't know the Bible inward and outward. That's okay. Why don't you put, put something together that every night before you pray with your children, you put them to bed, you just read a little part of the Bible, just a little part of the Bible. Maybe it's the Sermon on the Mount that Stephen Colbert was talking about or another place and part of the Bible. You, you read a part of the Bible with your child and you just talk about it for a couple of minutes. Your child will welcome the delay before they have to go to sleep. They will welcome anything that would delay going to bed. So they will welcome this moment, and they, let this be a moment in which you're sort of teaching a little bit of the Bible. You don't have to be have a Ph.D. in, in, in Bible. No, you, just a little bit. When you are living your life and you experience life, and, and say give you too much money at the cash register, they give you too much money back, and you see it, and you give it back, and you tell your child what happened, and I got too much change back and you always give it back. That's what honesty is about. You use that moment to teach your child something so special. When you have this person that goes crazy on the, on, on the, uh, the, on the road and you want to go crazy back and you don't and you explain to your child how you have chosen not to go as nutty as that person in the car in front of you. This is, these are good moments. These are great moments in which you can say to your child, see what just happened? Let me tell you why I did what I did. You are build, you're mentoring them. You're discipling your own children. There is no greater disciple in the whole world than a parent. Now, I want you to see Jesus' great example of bringing the Bible to bear against the adversary. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it is a, it's a long passage, but stay with me. Actually, try to read it with me, not out loud, but just read it with me silently as I'm reading, as though it's the first time you've read it. After his baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit. Everything he did was by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Just how powerful are you really? What did Jesus do? Jesus answered, It is written, 
Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I will not turn these stones into bread to be a show like you are trying to get me to do. I live from the Word of God. He responded. It is written. He responded with the Bible. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and he had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Here is the devil quoting Scripture. For it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes Scripture. He just takes it out of context because he's a liar. So what did Jesus do? What did he answer? He answered, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said unto him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. Jesus didn't respond to Satan with logic or clever arguments. He simply responded with God's word. He had poured the Word of God into his heart, and he simply answered back with the Word of God. It's a sword that can send Satan running. He knew he was hopeless, and he left him. The key to your spiritual success is this Bible. It is this Bible. This is the key to your success. Get into the Bible. Start reading the Bible. What would happen if you began to read? What would happen if you, in 2019, read through the entire Bible from beginning to end? Do you not know, how, Pastor, how big this thing is? Yeah, but you can read through the whole Bible in one year. And when you do, it is amazing what happens to you, what you learn, how you grow. By the way, you can start right now, sort of get a head start on next year, and you can begin today in Genesis 1-1, and you are way ahead of the game. And in 2019, you will have read through the entire Bible. By the way, you guys that, that, that go, you guys and gals who go to work and you are, you are in traffic for an hour to work and an hour home, listen to the Bible in your car on the way to work and on the way home. Did you know that if you did that, you would actually go through the Bible twice before the year is over? I'm serious. I do this all the time. When I'm in my car, I listen to the Bible. You can get an app on your phone that gives you the ability to listen to the Bible. And when you're listening to the Bible on your way to work, on your way home, the amazing thing is happening. You are growing. You are deepening. You are understanding. You are becoming stronger in the Word of God. The second tool weapon uh, that's offensive is prayer. Release the power of the Spirit through engaging God. Ephesians 6.18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. The second offensive weapon we have against Satan is prayer. We have decided on our staff that we are going to have a special time this next spring that is totally dedicated as a church to prayer. Six, seven weeks of 
that is dedicated to prayer. The message is dedicated to prayer. The Bible studies in Connect dedicated to prayer. And we're calling it 40 Days of Prayer. We believe that God is moving our church toward revival. We believe God is moving us toward renewal. And it's prayer that brings it. And we want to have an emphasis on prayer that's coming up in a few months because prayer will change you. Prayer will change you. To pray in the Spirit is a yielding kind of prayer. It is a prayer that empties us of our self-will. It surrenders us to the will of God. It is the kind of prayer that gets in touch with God. Some of you say, boy, I don't ever pray. And the reason I don't pray is because I have prayed. And it didn't, it didn't do anything. I never got through. Prayer didn't change anything in my life. And the reason is because so many people pray trying to convince God to do their will. I have figured it out. I know what you ought to do. And God, if you do this, then I'll believe in prayer. And God says to you and me, you ought to believe in prayer because I've told you to believe in prayer. But I will not bend my will to your will. You need to bend your will to my will. And when you bend your will to my will, you can ask me anything I will, and I will do it for you. And I'll do it every time. See, the problem is, is that you're trying to get God to do what you want him to do. Instead of you beginning to learn what God wants, what the will of God is, and praying that will of God. Do you hear what I'm saying? Praying in the Spirit is a yielding kind of prayer in which I yield my life. God, it's no longer what I want. It is what you want. God, here is a situation in my life. God, what is your will? God, is what is your desire? I want to pray according to your will. I've told you the story. I, needed, I want to share it again with you. This guy named George Mueller. Y'all to look him up. He's, there's a book on George Mueller. George Mueller was a guy that lived in around 18, around the 1850s, about the time that America is going through its worst period in the history of this country, the Civil War. George Mueller is going through the greatest moment that had been seen in so long in England. George Mueller got saved when he was in his 20s, and he really got saved. He began to believe everything he read in the Bible. He began to yield himself to God and his will, and something began to happen with him. He learned to pray. He learned to pray the will of God. He learned to discern the will of God and to pray in that way, and God began to do the miraculous in his life. God began to touch his heart and say, what I want you to do is I want you to begin to develop orphanages. In England in the mid-1800s, there were no orphanages. And if kids' parents died and no one took them in, they lived off the streets. It was horrible. God began to touch his heart. And George Mueller said, God, I don't have any money. I have no support. I can't have an orphanage. And God said to him, here's what I want you to do. And I don't want you to ever ask for any money. I want you just to ask me. You come to me and I will send you the money. But I want to show you the power of prayer. There's nothing wrong with asking for money. Paul does that on several occasions in his gospel, in his, in his epistles. But he spoke to the heart of George Mueller and said to George Mueller, for you, I don't want you to ask one person for a dime. All I want you to do is come and ask me, and I will always bring it. 
And over the course of the rest of his life, the most amazing miracles you could ever imagine, he actually had over $1 million given to him in the course of his life. And I checked the CPI inflation calculator, and $1 million in 1850 was worth, would be worth today $30,414,000. Can you imagine... All you're doing is praying, and 30 million just keeps it just keeps money keeps coming in. You don't even know where it's coming from. And this is how George Mueller lived his life. He actually developed many orphanages, all of them paid for all through prayer. One of the examples, I love this example. He has an orphanage, and the kids are in there, and there's not one one piece of food, one anything of food in that house. Nothing. There is no such thing for Mueller as reserve ever. There is not any food in the house, and he gets up, and one of his friends and benefactors, a guy that just so believed in his ministry would give him money, uh, his, he dropped his, that guy dropped his daughter off and said, won't you play with the kids in the orphanage today? And so Mueller has is, is got the hand of this little sweet little girl, and he says to her, sweetheart, let's go in to the dining room and see what God has for us to eat today. He went in there. All the kids in the orphanage were around that table. There were the plates and the silverware and the glasses and empty. And they all took hands around that table, and he said, Oh, God, we love you so much. You are a great provider. Now, Father, would you feed us today? And there was immediately a knock at the door. And when he answered the door, there was the guy who, was a, who owned a bakery in that town, and he said to George Mueller, he said, At 2 o'clock this morning, God woke me up and said, Mr. Miller, Mueller doesn't have any food. And he said, I started baking at 2 o'clock. I have baked all the way to 8 o'clock, and here's all the bread and all the goodies that I have made for the kids. Now, George Mueller did not pray till 8 o'clock, but at 2 o'clock, God spoke to the heart of the baker before he had even prayed to get the provision provided. Do you hear what I'm saying? And then that guy leaves, another knock at the door, and here is a guy who is the milkman. And in that day, the milkman came every day and gave and put milk out there for individuals to have milk in that town. They didn't have ways to preserve the milk. And he milked the cows early in the morning. He had a cart pulled by a horse, and the cart broke down accidentally in front of the orphanage. One of the wheels broke apart. He didn't have a spare wheel, and he said, I don't know what to do with all this milk except give it to the kids. And it's story after story, decade after decade, that happens because of one reason. George Mueller had come to understand that prayer can be powerful when it's praying in the Spirit. When it's praying a yielded to the will of God, understanding the will of God, praying the will of God, it becomes a powerful force in your life. God has given us this and said, take it. What God wants as your first prayer is, Lord Jesus, I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. I give Him my heart. And would you do that today? Would you bow with me? Would you close your eyes? God, on both campuses, God, would you speak to hearts on both campuses today?
to give their heart and life to you, to receive Jesus Christ as a personal Lord and Savior today, to join this church if they already know you, to, to recommit their hearts if they already know you. And Father, may you use us in a powerful way, more powerful than we ever dreamed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.